So what was the consensus you found among your colleagues, members of the media? What did most say about the case and, and Pistorius himself? So you had three groups of, of journalists, roughly, who covered the trial. The first would be the journalists who had got had connected to do with him in the past, either South African journalists or foreign journalists who had covered him or had met him. Uh, one of them was, was sort of friends with him. He'd been following him around at different sports events. Then there was a second group, the South African journalists, who knew him by reputation because a lot of the things that came out in the trial already were, were covered more in South African media, but they never made it to international news because you know, we didn't consider it to be newsworthy enough that he, you know, cheated on a girlfriend or a girlfriend cheated on him or his boat accidents and so on. Then there was a third group of journalists, which were more or less foreign journalists who came in because of the trial, who uh, also knew about him, but not as much, um, but came as, a, you know, as the, the, the foreign media. And the, I don't know if I should say loyalties or approaches were more or less split uh, along such lines. Those in me personally had a bit more of a nuanced uh, approach to the, to the trial. Uh, those of us who knew him by reputation were a bit uh, skeptical because he had a reputation um, for liking fast cars, beautiful women, having a hot temper, and then there was also a group of, of more feminist journalists who, who were convinced that this was a, a case of, of domestic violence. I would say that the majority was skeptical about his version of events that happened because there were just a lot of improbabilities that had kept having to be explained away. And then this, this is maybe a different an answer to a different question altogether, but, but from the start of not even the trial, for, shortly after this shooting happened, the Pistorius media team kicked, kicked into gear, and from the start there was this attempt to stage manage the information that, that got out. And that made all of us very skeptical about anything coming from that side. So I, I guess, I, I hadn't even really considered, and it might be an obvious question, but Pistorius did have a team of of media and, and journalists that were, as you said, covering the trial from his perspective then? There was, this was all public relations, so, so no coverage is per se, um, but from the start, they were, firstly, there was a reputation management company, first time in my life that I heard of something like this. Um, and then later, uh, a spokeswoman took over who was a, a former journalist herself and, and how the media worked. Uh, they set up a, a Twitter account, which was after trial hard truth, something like that. Uh, they sent out press releases when, when he had a, um, he had a memorial service for Vida income. They sent out a press release saying he will have a memorial service at his house. Please respect his privacy. There were a few other occasions too where they announced something was going to happen and then they would ask us to, to respect his privacy. But, you know, so, so leaking info on the one hand and, and trying to, to influence the public, you know, perception of him. 
and on the other, playing the, the innocence, we are just being open and, and frank with you. And it was never taken as that. So they tried to influence the public perception. Do you think it worked? What was, what was the public's opinion of Oscar Pistorius? That is a very good question because I think the public opinion is often very different from what the media's opinion uh, might be. I think uh, to an extent it, it did influence opinions on him. Firstly, the South African public, I can't speak for the rest of the world, but the South African public was very divided. You had a group of very staunch Pistoria supporters. At the trial, periodically, there would be either a throng when they were, you know, the big, the big days, the, the testimony or the opening or the closing or the verdict or the sentence. But even, you know, on, on days that nothing happened, you'd have the lady outside with a banner or a young girl handing him a bouquet of flowers. On the other hand, you had people and this, this, um, people saying he, he is obviously guilty of, of murder. I've never seen the trial grip uh, South Africans' imagination so much. It's also split a lot along sociographic lines, and in South Africa that's an indication of, an indicator of race. So black South Africans are more likely to say he is guilty because most black South Africans are still from a, a, coming from a, a poor background. Um, saying the, the justice system benefits the rich, the powerful uh, whites, and then you'll have middle-class white South Africans kind of buying into the story, trying to find ways. You had a lot of people trying to find ways of, of kind of fitting his version into into a reality, you know, like a like a jigsaw puzzle, and and the puzzles didn't always want to stick. I think that's why there's a lot of doubt about the eventual conviction and and sentencing that people some just feel you know that just can't be true. I think a lot of people felt that whatever happened that night on Valentine's Day last year, it was neither what he described nor that what the state implied. What are your thoughts on the case that the prosecution built and the sentence that was handed down? Do you think that he deserved a harsher sentence? That is a very, uh, that's a very difficult question to answer because uh, there's a running joke that all of us are suddenly legal experts after this trial because everybody has an opinion. Let's say that I understand the dilemma the judge had in making her decision. The, there's very clear evidence of something happening, four gunshots through a closed door, a confession of the shooter that he fired four shots through a door that was closed, that was locked. On, already on those grounds, he, he would be guilty uh, for a minimum of, of, of uh, what we call involuntary, involuntary homicide or, or manslaughter. Now the judge had to decide whether this was so serious that it actually constitutes murder. Now, South African law doesn't consider motive. Um, it helps in the judgment, but it's not something that, that needs to be proven. So you have to look at the facts of, of what happened, and they just weren't facts to uphold uh, what the state was, was charging him with, a premeditated murder of a girlfriend during a fight. So there's a very thin line. Um, I think 
she erred on the side of caution. There were people that said if he is then guilty of culpable homicide, he should get a, a heavy sentence as a deterrent. And um, it's more or less what I expected he would get with, with his conviction. Um, I thought he might get 10 years with five years suspended. Um, in the end, she gave him five years with no suspension. And um, generally, you, you you don't sit your whole uh, sentence. I'd be surprised if he sits, um, if he if he serves more than half. I'd be very surprised. Well, and of course, also uh, the IPC and the IOC have banned him from the Olympics and Paralympics for five years. Based on everything that we've discussed, the public's opinion how divided you said the country was. Do you think he has a shot at an Olympic comeback and would South Africa welcome him back onto the team? I think South Africa might welcome him back, um, but I think they would agree with the International Olympic Committee, which said that he wouldn't be allowed to compete over the next five years. Which, which was his, his sentence, even if he was released earlier. Um, so I don't see him competing competitive, uh, well, taking part in competitive sports before 2019 uh, or even 2020. Uh, now the big question is whether at 32 he will then still have um, his peak to be able to, to do this. I suppose, objectively speaking, it's very popular possible, but obviously we won't see him reach the height that he had before. He won't be an international superstar. He will be notorious. What is your opinion on whether a convicted killer should be allowed to compete at an event like the Olympics? I suppose it should be determined on a case-by-case merit. I think it would have been more complicated if he had been convicted of murder. But now he wasn't convicted of murder. So in the eyes of the law, meaning officially, he accidentally shot someone there and killed them. And that is that is the question we, we should ask, is if somebody accidentally shot somebody and killed them, being, being negligent, granted, should they be barred from competing? And I, and I think Legally, I, 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 I don't see, see grounds for that. Um, as I said, it would be more, you know, if there had been an, an intent and, and murder involved, it would have been more complicated. But once again, his, his reputation is shattered. And I don't know if he would want to put himself in that spotlight again because media would follow him around. Uh, they would hound him for all the wrong reasons for everything that he would want to put behind them. The um, prosecution has, or had at the day of sentencing, 14 days to appeal, right? Yeah. So any any day within that time frame, do you expect that they will appeal? I, I would think that they would take what they, what they can get in this case. On the other hand, um, this might have value for future cases in South Africa, jurisprudence, and how they um, how they try cases like this, because there were similar cases 
uh, in the past of people less famous who were, who were convicted of murder because they had been negligent or, or doing something they knew was, was dangerous and that had killed people. So the prosecution might want to clarify this with the court, and the way of doing this is, is to to appeal so that our higher court hands down uh, a ruling which would serve as an example to others.